The following podcast contains spoilers and words such as done and bother. Mate, did we watch a thing this week? Yeah, we did. Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Watch The Thing. It's Billy and Topher, and we're doing a throwback this week, mate. What are we watching? We sure are. We are doing Michael Mann's film Heat. Yes. Yes. Now, the way throwbacks work, for those who uh, haven't joined us for one of these previously, it's a film that one of us loves, the other's never seen. I shockingly have not seen this. So, you genuinely love this film, though. How many times do you reckon you've seen it? It's a lot. I don't know how many times I have seen it. I remember this run of me and one of my best mates when we lived together. It only took one of us to say on any given evening, maybe we should watch Heat. And the other one's just like, fuck, yes, we should. That is exactly what we should do. As far as we were concerned, watching Heat was always the right thing to do. I know that it was either last year or the year before that it was doing a round at cinemas and you went you went to see it. Yeah, which so I didn't see it in cinemas at the time. I was kind of, well, I wasn't old enough <laughs> was, was the problem. Um, so that was, yeah, first chance I'd had to see it in the theatres and it was so good. It was so good. Tell me about this. I know that I've heard- stories about the sound somewhere was this like the first dolby film or something like that certainly there are innovations in the sound which we'll we'll get to as we kind of make our way through this film which as as you've said or like as we've just touched on i didn't see this film in cinemas i came to it when i was in a department store one day taking a kind of shortcut through a mall on my way home and i would I still like doing this, just walking through a DVD section of a shop. Yeah. I was walking through the DVD section of this store and I was at this age where I w- it was kind of probably when I was really starting to like really get into movies um, and realise that this is something I like more than most people I know. And one of my early phases of this was going Pacino and De Niro crazy. Yeah, yep. As these two, like they were kind of- like, they were the guys that you kind of- You knew that these were probably the two most important actors of, you know, the last 30 years. And so, I saw the cover of this movie and was just like, oh, my God. that It's both of them. <laughs> um, and, and just bought the DVD with the little money I had working at McDonald's, um, which, fun story, doesn't pay that much. Um <laughs> And, you know, judging from the the cover of the film and being a teenage boy, which is to say stupid, I was actually kind of disappointed by the movie because I wanted just like two hours 40 of action. Yeah. Which the movie is not. Um, and I remember by no means disliking it, but I didn't love it to begin with. But at the same time, it, something about it got a hook into me. And I just kept watching the movie yeah. until at some point when, I don't know if it was just because I'd aged a few more years or like some, whatever happened, I just got to this point where I was like, oh, wow. Like you'd acquired a taste for it. Like when yeah, you I first like, start drinking beer, you're like, oh, I don't like this. And then the hoppier you get, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You just kind of get yeah. acclimatized like like a, like a frog in a pot of hot water. 
And particularly when I look back at the beer that I did start drinking, no wonder I didn't love it. Because <laughs> that stuff is swill. <laughs> so, all right, let's get into it then. Heat is a 1995 American crime drama film written and directed by Michael Mann. It features an ensemble cast led by Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, as we said, with Tom Sizemore, John Voight and Val Kilmer in supporting roles. What is it about, Toph? Um, It follows the stories of a cop and a robber. You're probably familiar with the concept. Normally in a cops and robber film, you're focused on one side. In Heat, we get both in equal measure. We get the thief, played by De Niro, and the cop who's trying to track him down, played by Pacino. Yeah. Yeah, you do. It's the second swing, if you like, that man had at this film, having made a a made-for-TV film called, appallingly, (laughs) L.A. Takedown in the, I believe, mid-80s, which apparently is, I mean, just absolutely horrendous. It's meant to be just, like, unwatchable. Yeah. (laughs) So, he he subsequently got longer and longer because he had initially written it as a pilot for a series and then i guess after that series didn't get picked up because at the time like michael mann yeah like he's my miami vice is yeah what michael mann is at the time and then after that series didn't get picked up he made the television film and then we ended up ended up with this nearly three hour epic like it must be vastly different to the original script that was written in 79 like that film it is based on two actual on at least two actual people um the real-life thief that it's based on is actually called Neil McCauley. He didn't even change his name. Yeah. This was in Chicago rather than LA. Um, and then there was a cop who he did change the name of. Don't know why you changed one name but not the other, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, there's several other characters that are kind of based on real-life people as well. I believe Wayne Grow is based on a real-life person. Yeah, right. And John Voight's character is based on a real-life person who is, fun fact- The actual person that John Voight's character is based on is the old guy in Reservoir Dogs who you kind of just lose track of. And you're like, what happened to Mr. I don't don't know what color he is, but, you know, the old guy. (laughs) Yeah, Mr. Gray. That's that's John Voight's character. Yeah, right. That's cool. He went from being a criminal to an actor at some point, (laughs) I guess. Uh, Much like um, Machete. (laughs) Indeed. Who who had indeed spent time at Folsom where- where Neil McCauley had been. Yeah. I mean, you know the story behind his career, don't you? I'm sure everybody does at this point, but it's pretty fascinating because he was working as a drug counsellor after getting out of prison, helping young actors and stuff get clean. And he was on the set of, it was a boxing film, I can't remember, helping the actor with cocaine issues. And uh, the director, who had also been in prison, recognised him and he was like, oh, I remember that you used to box. Can you teach this kid to box? <laughs> And from there, he just ended up acting. <laughs> so, the guy- Fun fun story. I love this story. The guy who played Wayne Grow, he wound up in prison in a shock to absolutely no one who has seen the guy who <laughs> yeah. played Wayne Grow. <laughs> and he was universal- In prison, prisoners and guards, like everyone apparently, only called him Wayne Grow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't realise at the beginning when I saw this film how good the first scene is where Macaulay is stealing the ambulance. Yeah. one of the For me, one of the best scenes in the film. So good. Because, like, the first time you watch it- Well, for, speaking for myself anyway, and, okay, 
granted, I was really young at the time, but I'm sure even now if I watched it for the first time, I don't know if I would notice that Neil makes his way through the entire hospital without taking his hands out of his pockets. And then when he does, it's because he's got gloves on and doesn't want to look like some, why does this guy have gloves on that clearly a criminal would have on? Um, And so a couple of minutes into the film, without De Niro having to say a single line, man's already done a really good job of setting up this guy, I think. I would agree, definitely. I think I'm going to come out here and I'm going to say this off the bat. For me, the film is too long. Like, quite a bit too long. Like, there is a fair amount of editing that could be done here to make this a better film for me. And I think there is a lot more time put into... Developing isn't the right word because none of the- I don't feel like there's a lot of character development in the sense that we usually think of development. But there's a lot more character establishment for Macaulay than there is for Hannah in the film, I think. You get very little establishment for Pacino and yet I feel like overall, as you said, it's about 50-50 and he's the good guy. We're meant to, and he's not a good guy, he's the good guy, but he's not, you know, he's flawed, which is great. And that's one of the good things about the film. But I kind of don't give that much of a shit about him, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, that's fine. That's that's what the film is. But for me, for the length that this film runs, I just think there's there's a beat missing there. So, that's one thing I really, that I still love about the film is that there's this balance, as you said- the co- we're, we're programmed. Of course, the cop is the good guy. And it's not like that gets flipped on its head. Vincent is not an evil guy. But of Macaulay and Hannah, who would you rather was your neighbour? It's Macaulay. Like, Hannah- I mean, it depends on who you are and how you're dealing with him. He can be a deeply unpleasant person. Yes. Yes. Now, Neil's more likely to murder you, <laughs> yeah. which is not great. Well, and as you said, it's not like it ever flips. You know, like this isn't this isn't Dog Day Afternoon, for example, where by the end of the film you're almost sympathising with the robber. There's you never. It's not like he has grand motivations for why he's doing what he does. It's not like he deep down wants to you know grow or anything. He's he's a bad dude. He's doing it because he wants money. He doesn't care who he kills. So, you're kind of at the end of the film not really empathising with either of them. And as I said, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But I just think for the length of the film, that's something that is missing for me. Reasonably early. In fact, very early on in the film, one of the first scenes is is Val Kilmer's first scene. A role that he came to fairly late because they didn't think he'd be able to film this and Batman Forever. Right. Um which are the same year, and at the end, is it turned out that the schedule did work out, and so they get Kilmer in personally by some margin my favourite Val Kilmer role. Yeah. I think Kilmer knocks the character of Chris absolutely out of the park. I love moments with him in- I mean, the first scene is when he's, he's buying some supplies. Then we get him pre-robbery, where he's just sitting in a car- by himself and just doing these cool little details like and he, he's not like teeth chattering on edge because he's a pro he's done this a bunch of times but just the little things of like changes the radio station yeah leaves it for a couple of seconds then just turns it off because he's just kind of in that antsy 
pre-game mode. Yeah. Um, it's, I think, just a great side of Kilmer. I agree. Can I say, while I'm, while I'm getting my controversial stuff out of the way up front, I think that Kilmer is the strongest performance in the film for me. De Niro is De Niro and Pacino is Pacino. I don't think this is either of their best performances by any stretch. But, geez, yeah, Kilmer's good. And the chemistry and relationship between him and Ashley Judd as well is easily the strongest relationship in the film. I don't think you're really meant to give a shit about either of the other's partners. To me, De Niro's missus should be cut. That's one of the through lines that doesn't work for me. But, yeah, Kilmer's great in this film. Watching the film this time around is the first time that I've watched it since seeing it at the cinema last year. And one of the things I was really looking forward to is that job that I was mentioning that Kilmer's kind of just getting antsy before before doing that robbery of the armoured vehicle. Yeah. Which, like, I imagine it sounded pretty good for you at home. It sounded pretty good for me at home. I can't tell you how satisfying it is in a theatre. Yeah. It's audio to a level, like it actually, or like, like, I'm like, like you can kind of drill down into this and be like, well, yes, audio kind of does physically hit you. It's a wave. It does hit you. Yeah. Sometimes you really kind of know you've been hit. By yeah. Audio. yeah. <laughs> and that robbery is one of them. It does not miss. It's phenomenal. And I just, I think just an absolute killer sequence. So brilliantly put together by man. Yeah, I did watch this film in the home theatre, which I don't do for every movie. A lot of them, I'm like, oh, I'll just watch this in the lounge room. And yeah, that sound is good. The, the biggest shame is that I had sleeping children, so couldn't have it too loud. But yeah, it it is very, very- And that entire opening scene, the first 15 minutes of the film, which leads from Macaulay stealing the ambulance into this heist, absolutely- Brilliant. One of the best heist scenes I've ever seen. When when the armor guard car is traveling along and the truck- And you know what's going to happen. You know exactly what's going to happen. But it's cut at a really good pace where it's not over-edited. It's so clear what's happening. It, it's really well put together. So, this absolutely holds for- the, We might as well do this now because I think it absolutely holds true for this specific scene. Both when it's happening and then that evening- once Vincent Hanna has turned up to inspect the scene, it really struck me this time watching the film how often Michael Mann just foregoes an establishing shot for a scene. So many scenes in this film play out entirely, or at least very nearly entirely, in mid-shots and close-ups. And yet, you're never lost. He does an amazing job of keeping your orientation crystal clear without having given you this overall idea of the space. It's kind of freaky, actually. That's absolutely true. He, and I think that part of that comes down to the sense of movement in the film. You know, like, you think about that opening scene where we're following De Niro through and then we're following the cars. You can't- you, we're moving with the characters, which is why I think each scene kind of establishes so well. That, yeah, the use of movement in the film is very strong. And then the- Maybe there's a film to rival this for me, but off the top of my head, I can't think what it would be. And because you and I are both pretty easily bored by gunfire in a film. Yeah, very much. In this film, and I think it's the combination of how hard they go audio-wise with a gunshot. Like, it's not just like bang, 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 bang. Like, even just one shot going off 
is a really serious noise. Yeah. And also, we recently watched- um, was it? I've already forgotten the name of that utterly forgettable film. Was it No Remorse or Without, it was without Remorse? Right. It was. It was one of the two. I know that the guy it's, didn't feel bad. Yeah, like <laughs> it was lacking in remorse. Yeah. Um, and there's one sequence in that towards the end of the film where like everyone's just firing. It's yeah. just bang, 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 and there's no, um, there's no consequence to firing a bullet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that goes for how many action films that we see. Yeah. In this movie, if someone pulls a trigger, something happens. Yes. It's a big deal because people die. <laughs> yeah. Or, and that that's established in that opening scene. In that opening scene. When Wangro just completely fucking, for zero reason, shoots that guy. Goes full Wangro. And then De Niro comes back and shoots the other guy. <laughs> like, just completely establishes this is this universe. People will die. No remorse. <laughs> <laughs> There's another good thing there, I think, that man does in setting up that, okay, yes, these are everyone here is a murderer. Yes. But this guy is a nut job. This guy's just cold-blooded. That's right. Yeah, you can feel the different motivations there, definitely. I also think that the gunfire that is in the film is actually, this is going to sound strange, but in some ways quite restrained. It's not like you've got- this isn't full gang warfare gunfire blazing- all the action kind of probably the, like the biggest gunfiery scene in the movie is is still kind of split between these smaller groups. And I, I don't know. I just think it's handled quite well. And even, I mean, the, the scene where obviously we get the most gunfire in the, the big heist, the bank heist of yes. the film, which spills out into a shootout in the street. All the or- they did an interesting thing there where they just they just had microphones everywhere recording audio live as it happened. Yeah. Which gets you that really big reverb. Yes. That you get from the gunfire in that um in that sequence, which I rem- which thinking back is you remember when you would hire when like DVDs existed but we we're all still watching VHS. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least we certainly were in my sub. <laughs> we were not on DVD players yet. Um on the commercial on a VHS that was trying to get you to move to DVD, one of the shots that they used when talking about the audio is actually the bank heist yeah. in this film. That's how good you know, that's how good the whole sound design in this film yeah. is. Is that it was literally part of the advertisement for get DVDs because the sound's better. Yeah. The other thing I think that that did, you know, having that that reverberation on the gunshots and stuff that you were talking about, it makes it feel much less choreographed too. Like this, it feels much more real. You know, this this it. It just has that feeling about it where it doesn't feel rehearsed. It's not this big staged, you know, they're not spinning around and the camera's spinning around them and they're shooting bullets in every direction. It feels much more natural than that. Don't offer totally by Wayne Grow's Jason Bourne-esque vanishing act when they're going to kill him at the diner. Yeah. Like, is is that who Wayne Grow is? Yeah. He just- Macaulay turns around for like a second and a half and Wayne grows gone. And at that point, that's before we know that he's a hooker killer as well. Yeah. I mean, we've probably guessed that the guy's pretty up for killing people, (laughs) given his actions at the robbery. Yeah. It's funny. You know, that's one of the things that I both like and dislike about the film. There's too much going on for me here. Wayne grow has that side story, which really kind of winds around being irrelevant, except that he sells them out, but he- he could have done that anyway. Um, I don't need 
De Niro having a romance, for me, that does absolutely nothing and is completely unbelievable because that girl is way too pretty and he is really old with this disgusting, dirty <laughs> goatee. I, I know people who are into early to mid-90s De Niro. Oh. There is definitely a market oh. for this era De Niro nah, in, in romantic terms. <laughs> no. And, yeah, f- for me, that story just does nothing. For It adds nothing for me personally. Um, you know, sure, there's the ending where he, he leaves her because the heat come around the corner, which is what he's always said he's going to do. I kind of- I feel like we knew his character well enough to know that was going to happen anyway. There was no surprise in that moment for me or anything. So, it's kind of just really a lot of time filler for me. Um, Neil, Neil's house- just like it almost it almost makes me laugh it's so hilarious the the reflection of him that this cold steely empty vessel that he lives in yeah <laughs> it's but just with amazing. that with that beautiful view of the beach <laughs> cracking view <laughs> everyone in this house in this film has very nice houses about halfway through halfway through I was like you know what I'd like to see Nancy Myers have a crack at directing heat we'd spend a lot more <laughs> yeah. time in their houses <laughs> yeah yeah, most people. Yeah, in terms of houses we visit, very nice. Which is kind of in contrast to some of the places, yeah, in and around LA we visit. Which I, I remember. I, I think I remember being struck by this when I first saw the film. Is that if you're not from LA and your familiarity with that city through television and movies is your entire experience with that city, um, at the age that I saw this film, you know, we're talking. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, we're talking 90210. Yeah. Like, as far as we were concerned, everyone in LA lived in a mansion. Yep. Do I know how dumb that sounds? <laughs> yes, but that's all, we, that's all we saw. Yeah, definitely. No one in Clueless was slumming it. <laughs> and then the places that characters get dragged to in this film, which not a single scene of it is shot on a soundstage. The entire thing is locations. Yeah. And- just some shitty places. <laughs> I was like, oh, was, was I wrong about this city? <laughs> Is everyone not sitting on an absolute gold mine? Weird. Maybe my favourite location in the film, when he first goes to the guy who's, you know, like stripping Porsches or whatever and, and Pacino has to walk through the the kennels to get there and just this. It's. I think it's just a great shortcut in filmmaking that if there's someone who like what they do is facilitate dog fighting, like automatically you're just like, wow, you're the actual biggest piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious Pacino scene. That one. This is something that before we watched this film, I'd said to my dear friend, Billy here, I was like, there's something about this film that I'm tempted to tell you before you watch it. I And this is one of those things, as I was mentioning before, and, it, this will make sense after you tell us what it is. We're missing that in the film. You know, that's something that would actually help us get into this character. So, some people, I would argue against it, but I know where they would be coming from, would kind of write this Pacino performance off as middle period big Pacino. It's borderline for me, to be honest. I, I think with without the context of what you're going to say- um, this is not a bad performance, but it's a borderline performance. I think, yeah. Is Pacino going for it? Absolutely. She's got a great ass. <laughs> but in scenes like Gimme All You Got, the one thing that Pacino is doing 
that we don't necessarily know about but did exist in the first script that Pacino was given is that Vincent Hanna is a coke addict. Yeah. And when he's acting like someone who is on drugs, it's because he, in fact, is on drugs. Following on from the gimme all you got meeting, when he does go to the nightclub to meet the guy and his brother, and you just watch him walk from the car yeah. to that entrance, you're like, oh, yeah, this guy is, he's high as oh, a kite and all the clicking, at this point. The incessant clicking. <laughs> yeah, he's, and he's walking along and he's kind of just, just what he's doing with his hands, like with his tie and stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, he's, this guy is, is so obviously, now that I know it, he's so obviously on drugs. But here's the thing for me, that- all of that makes this film worse for me because now it's bad filmmaking that that was cut and it's bad acting by Pacino to go that direction even though it was cut because he is playing too big. Without that establishment that he's a drug addict, he is just acting badly in a lot of those scenes. <laughs> um, the accusation that Pacino is acting badly is quite frankly disgusting. Um, <laughs> I Look- Clearly, I didn't dislike it before knowing that. I do like it more knowing it. But at some level, it must have been doing something because it was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that definitely checks. Not like, oh, wow, that's a revelation. It was like, oh, yeah, that that tracks. And, and it, well, that's the thing for me. It completely tracks even character wise. Like, he's a hardworking cop in the 90s. It Like, he's absolutely the kind of person who would have been doing coke back then. So- I kind of don't know. I don't understand why it was cut because it wouldn't take long to establish that and it would have made the performance and the film better in my eyes. There, there were times where Pacino took the the drug thing to the extreme. Apparent, allegedly, allegedly, he took it to the extreme of sometimes not just acting. Yes. Like he was a coke addict. <laughs> um, <laughs> might have been some use involved. Um <laughs> I, look, I don't know which scene is which, if, if that's true, but it wouldn't shock if one of those scenes is where Hannah first meets Hank Azaria's character, where Pacino's work in that scene is not scripted, and the look on Hank Azaria's face of what the fuck is happening <laughs> yes. here is absolutely Are real. you telling me the great ass scene was not scripted? That is not scripted. That is <laughs> great ass. Great ass. So, yeah, that look, there's just no acting required from Hank Azaria in that scene. That's awesome. That's great. It's pretty fun to see Hank Azaria pop up, actually. This would have been the same year or after he he made his stint on Friends. (laughs) I know he had a little bit of Friends chat, you know, week before last. But, yeah, he's he's Phoebe's boyfriend. He's the scientist, David. Okay. Uh, They date in season one, and then he goes to Minsk to conduct research. He comes back later, though, but she's with someone else, and it's it's quite sad because we like David, the scientist. Ah. Yeah. Bummer. (laughs) 40 minutes into the film, we meet the actual biggest piece of shit in the film, the guy who runs the diner who employs Dennis Haysbert. Yeah. What an absolute prick. Like, of everyone in this film, the one person that I'd be like, I don't care if you catch a bullet, <laughs> it's the owner of the diner. I hate that guy. And just props to whoever's playing him because he doesn't- <laughs> Like, I hate him so much, which is actually just because it's a great performance. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of performances, there's something that listeners of the show will know that you famously hate. You're not here for. And that's child actors. True. So, tell me how you feel and- about young Natalie in this film. Had you seen Leon before you came to this? I reckon I would have seen this before Leon. 
is my guess. Um, Leon being Portman's first film, this being her second. Often called The Professional. It might be called The Professional elsewhere. Yep, Leon slash The Professional, whatever you want to call it. Jean Reno killing a bunch of people. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) Um, um, If I was going to cut one thread of this film, it would be Portman's stuff. Yeah. That pains me to say it about our gal Nat, who we love. I love Natalie Portman. I texted you as soon as she popped up. Be like, hey, it's Portman. By the end of the film, I just want it cut. It Again, it doesn't add to anything. It's the most human we ever see, Vincent. Yes, and I get that that's the point of it, but I think that there are quicker ways to establish that. Because el- like elsewhere, Vincent almost doesn't know how to behave as a human being. I mean, he's too high, mate. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. And like one- <laughs> there's a point where like one of his colleagues has been shot and he asks him on the phone how he's going. Yeah. And it almost seems like it's just because he knows that's what he should ask, not because he gives the slightest fuck yeah. that this guy's been shot. So the, that's the one good thing about Portman's character is that it's the most human that Hannah ever is. Having said that, do I need that plotline? No, nah, I don't. I tell you what would be actually the scariest thing to ever happen to anybody in the world ever. It would be Bobby De Niro saying, What am I doing? I'm talking to an empty telephone. Because there was a dead man on the other end of this fucking night. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) I could not love that line reading anymore. (laughs) Like, if I was Michael Mann, I'd have filmed De Niro stuff first so that I could play it back on set so that William Fitchner just didn't even need to act. (laughs) He just stands there with a telephone looking petrified. I love it. William Fitchner, just mad, underrated and underused. Yeah. This would have been the first thing I saw him in, I suspect. Probably. It's like this and then Go. How good is Fitchner in Go? Yeah, Go is seriously underrated. Love that movie. Fitchner's great. And I'm, I'm sure that his casting at the beginning of The Dark Knight is part of Nolan's kind of nod to the sprawl of his film reflecting this one. Absolutely, The Dark Knight reflects this even just the the subtlety of using the city as a character like this, like we haven't really spoken about this, but um, LA is a is a big part of this film for me anyway. Is the way I read it. Yeah, that's it. Like on the on the cover, like on the poster, it says heat, and then like the tagline is an LA crime saga. Yeah, and it's bang on just in terms of the the sprawl that the story in the film takes on, which kind of also reflects. The city itself and is a, I suppose, one of the better excuses that man had for uprooting it from Chicago, where it actually happened, to LA. Oh, and to me, too, it's the only excuse imaginable for the length of the film is, um, as you said, the sprawl of it. Like, having it feel so sprawling and you not everything connects, you know? Like, in a usual film, that would be bad. You know, you think of the old storytelling adage, you know- you don't want ands. You don't want it to be this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. Everything should be buts or therefores. This film really is a whole string of ands. Like, there's a lot of shit in this film that happens for no real reason. <laughs> when he finds Natalie Portman in the bathtub, for example, and a little bit of your head goes, oh, shit, did Bobby do this? Nah. <laughs> she she did it. Of course she did. It's got nothing to do with anything that's happened previously. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in this film. You know, Wangro killing the hooker. 
nothing to do with anything that's going on with De Niro or Hannah. But, you know, in a usual film, that would just be bad storytelling. But in this film, I, I think you've hit the head on hit the nail on the head with the word sprawl there. And yeah, the city is really what ties that all together, I think. One of my favourite edits, edit points and, and bits of performance in the film is in the meeting where they're deciding, okay, are we going to do the bank job or is this just too big a risk? The moment where Chris realises Neil is leaving is so good. I'm t- This is like all of a second's worth of filmmaking here where Neil says, well, I'm going away after this, so the risk is probably worth it. And we just cut to Chris for like literally a second or two. Yeah. And Val Kilmer just does this thing where to tell you that that's news to Chris. Yeah. And with their relationship, which you touched on earlier, which is kind of this real big brother, little brother. Yeah. How shocked and prob- and really not that he wants to show it at all, but hurt Chris is by this moment. Yeah. Um, again, like just to bang on about how good Kilmer is in this film. Yeah. Like we're talking again, like literally one or two seconds here. Yeah. Where it's like, we don't need dialogue. We can just show this in one cut. Bang. Yep. Give me all you got. <laughs> also Sizemore in those scenes. It'd be my favourite Sizemore as well. Same. He, he gets very little screen time. And yet what he does with it, for me, really nails it. Like he's the only crew member really who doesn't, get any kind of i mean none of them really get backstory but he just he gets nothing he's just there and yet he's just rocking the action is the juice for sizemore yeah (laughs) (laughs) so a decent chunk of the way into this film we get like the scene which is where after all this dancing around not only in this film but also throughout their careers yeah we get pacino and de niro where there was the whole thing, like, yes, obviously they were both in Godfather Part 2, but obviously not on screen together. These two absolute titans and icons of the industry, finally we're going to sit them down. And there's something almost hilariously brilliant about Michael Mann going, we're not going to move the cameras, we're not, there's going to be no staging, there's nothing, I'm just going to sit these two guys down and be like, get me all you got. Yeah, apart from the opening, absolutely my favourite scene in the film. And mostly, and they didn't, I think it was De Niro's idea that they shouldn't rehearse the scene so that them playing off each other would just feel more immediate and real. And man was like, yep, good call. Yeah. Um, And so shot with two cameras so he could really get those two working off each other. And mostly it is used off off one take. I think it I off the top of my head I think take 8 is the the bulk of that scene of these two guys just sitting there being incredible and this scene like for anyone who thinks that Pacino no longer has it at this point in his career and that everything he's doing in this film is big. Yeah, this is a very quiet scene. You only need to look at at this scene and how small he goes, there's things he'll be telling De Niro something and look at the wild-eyed yep. great ass <laughs> is gone. And he'll just do this kind of sad half smile yeah. at points. as Very subdued. As almost like he realises how weird it is that the only person he can tell this to yep. is this guy that he's probably going to wind up yeah. killing. Let me say this, though. <sighs> look, I know that I've sounded maybe negative on this film. And my score's not going to reflect that. I enjoyed this film, but I'm I'm going to say something else here. This scene is so far and away the pinnacle of this film that for me, 
I didn't really feel like the film even really got going until this moment, which is, well, I mean, what, an hour and a half into the film, maybe longer. And I don't feel like it ever gets back to this point. This film is not as much of a cat and mouse game as you might expect, or as this scene might have you expect. This scene almost makes you think that you're getting set up for much more cat and mouse, that they're going to be, it's going to be neck and neck, they're on each other's trails. That's never really where this film goes. And for me, I think it would have been more interesting if it did. You know, you think of those great cat and mouse relationships where the two actually know each other and how much fun that is and how thrilling that is. And this film, for me, it doesn't play with it enough. There's almost no reason for them to meet in this scene other than to get the two actors together. And to me, that's a little disappointing. So for me, I have grown to absolutely love where the film goes after this point because rather than doing what it could do, which is end at the bank heist, what the film then goes into is this kind of extra chapter moving away from tension for the most part and kind of going into the tragedy of these guys. Yeah. Again, I could do without it, but it is the excuse for Portman's character. And ultimately, the tragedy really is more with Macaulay in that what leads to this guy's downfall is that he veers away from this thing he's been preaching the whole time. And rather than taking you to this high point, Mans then just says, okay, I'm just going to let this thing simmer for a while. I disagree. that's where we're going. I disagree. And here's where my problem with it is. And I guess I, I kind of know where you're coming from. His thing is about if you see the heat, don't be afraid to ditch everything and go, right? But every time we hear him say that, it is in response to close personal relationships. That's not the reason that he gets caught up with by Hannah. It's not because of the girl. It's because he goes back to kill Wangro because he's that kind of vengeance but again, that's, person. But that's a personal decision. It is. That's not, but- a, that's not a professional call. Yeah, I know where you're coming from, but it's, I don't know, for me, it doesn't have that same thematical impact. And not to mention, if it's not for her, I think he's already gone at that point. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, for me, that's where the finale gets a little bit messy. And I don't mind the idea of him going back to kill Wangro because that's exactly what this guy would do. Like, (laughs) I don't think he is as ready to just ditch everything and, and go as he thinks he is. But for me, there's, yeah, I don't know. It's a little bit all over the shop towards the end there for me. What I don't understand is how the cops get fooled by Chris having a haircut. That's silly. That's very, very silly. (laughs) Yeah, okay, let him go. This guy doesn't have a ponytail. (laughs) I mean, he definitely looks like Bruce Wayne, but (laughs) whatever. And and then we get no- um no finale to that character. I'm guessing he just gets away with his money, right? I mean, yeah. get, I guess he gets the money but loses his 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 wife. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Heat too. What's Chris doing? <laughs> Here's a question. How did Portman know where Vincent was staying to go to his- I thought that was weird too. That's why when it first happened, I thought it must have been Bobby or Wangro or, or someone doing that to Hannah because to me, it didn't make any sense. That's never made sense to me. And I've watched this film many, many times. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe I'm missing something obvious. The penny hasn't dropped yet. Yeah. All right. So you obviously, obviously love this film. Um, what's your score on it? And has that score changed over time? It's probably been pretty steady for a long time. Um, 
maybe when I was like 19 being peak film bro it was a 10 out of 10. I've slipped to a 9 out of 10 now. Yeah. Um, I absolutely do not care about the length of this film. Like, it could be fucking longer for me. I don't care. I absolutely love the sprawl of it. I love the tangents. Yeah. Except for Natalie Portman's <laughs> character. Um, I could watch Pacino and De Niro all day long in this film and plenty of other characters besides. So, yeah, I'm a nine out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's obviously the- the opinion of the majority. I think. I think I'm in the in the lesser here. And again, I by no means do I dislike the film. I liked it a lot. I'm a seven out of ten, which is a good score. I for me though, it it needs quite a deep edit. I think this film could be oh, two hours, two hours twenty maybe, and I think you'd you'd have a stronger flick. That's um, disgusting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like you know, size wars. The action is the juice. For me, and like I'm actually like seriously, for me, the sprawl is the point. And and I absolutely agree with you. And as I said earlier, it, it works in that sense. When you look at it from that perspective about the sprawl of it, it absolutely works. But I still think that there are many, many, many tangents that could be cut. And I think you'd have a stronger film for me. Obviously not for everyone else because lots of people love this film. And I wonder if I'd feel differently about it had I seen it 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I'm coming to it very, very late at this point. So, who knows what that has to do with it. I think he's like literally a quarter of a century old, which is just weird. Yeah. We're so old. We're really, really old. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool. What are we getting to next week, buddy? Uh, I don't know. A movie, probably. Next week, I think- Unless I'm mistaken, let me double check the old calendar here. Next week, it's finally happening. We're back in the MCU, my friend, Black Widow. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at wewatchthething.com or wewatchthething at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchthething. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchthething, and we'll catch you next week. Watch a movie, folks.